I'd like you to come with me to Corinth and to what we know to be Paul's first letter to the church there. Paul visited Corinth in about 50 to 52 A.D. This was a a major commercial uh, center in the Roman Empire of about 200,000 people, a very pagan culture, uh, a culture that majored in sexual immorality. And it was in this uh, culture uh, to which Paul went and planted a church. Uh, This church, um, a few years later, wrote to Paul, having had some problems, uh, as churches are wont to do. Uh, When I have been asked, how's your church? I say, well, if it weren't for the people, it would be fine. And if you ask the people, they say, if it's not for the pastor, it would be fine. Uh, So there are all kind of problems that uh, occur and emerge. And uh, Paul is going to address one of these problems and a number of subset issues in this text that we have today. This is the word of the Lord, beginning at chapter 10, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is uncommon to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you, As sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. You may be seated. I rather admire the Secret Service. They render quite a service in the protection of our president. And I imagine that if we were involved in the inner workings of the Secret Service, that they would acknowledge two major dangers. And maybe not the dangers you're thinking I'm going to express, but the dangers of overconfidence 
And the other danger on the opposite side of that coin, complacency. Paul saw something similar in the Corinthian church. Overconfidence, complacency. And that led to some deep problems in the church. I imagine the Secret Service was quite shaken, as we all were as Americans, last September when one individual not only climbed the fence, not only raced across the White House lawn, but got fairly deep into the White House. And then in January, somebody very cleverly landed a drone on the White House lawn. And then just in April, a Postal Service worker gets in a gyrocopter and he lands on the White House lawn. That probably caused the Secret Service, I at least hope so, to step back and look at where have we been overconfident in our ability to stop these kinds of things and where have we been complacent. And Paul says the same thing to the Corinthian church. You need to look at where you've been overly confident and where you've been complacent and the fallout of all of that. And then the message is also to us today. Look at ourselves. Examine ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. Even if we weren't coming to the Lord's table, examine ourselves. Where are we being overconfident and where are we being complacent? And so Paul starts out and tells us that he wants us to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and were all passed through the sea. So he's talking about the Old Testament, and we can always learn a great deal from the Old Testament. And I think to our detriment, uh, we spend uh, an inordinate amount of time in the New Testament to the exclusion of the Old Testament and, and what we can learn from them. And so he said, look at our fathers. And it's interesting that he uses uh, covenantal, uh, sacramental language in describing uh, the fathers in the wilderness. Uh, first, he talks about baptism, and we know that there was no baptism per se as we know it today uh, in the Old Testament, but circumcision, which was the forerunner to our baptism. And uh, we know that uh, as he expresses himself in verses 3 and 4, which we'll read in a moment, with regard to a reference to the Lord's Supper, uh, that Passover was really uh, the forerunner. But uh, Paul talks about uh, these matters in the language of, of sacraments. And he says about our fathers, they were all under the cloud. Remember, the cloud was God's presence that led God's people. Uh, whenever it stopped, they were to stop. Whenever it moved on, they were to move on and in the direction of the cloud. I've often been jealous of my Old Testament brothers and sisters that had something like that. And then I'm quickly reminded that I've got the Holy Spirit, which is far better than a cloud. Uh, and I've got the scriptures, which is far better than a cloud. Uh, but that was how God guided them in their day and time. And then they all passed through the Red Sea together. And so Paul says um, that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Uh, what he's saying there is they had a wonderful advantage. They were in a, in a very tight relationship with Moses, in a union, in a communion with him in, in this experience. And Paul would remind us today the blessing we have of being baptized into Jesus Christ and having a personal relationship with him, and being in union and communion with him. And then he goes on to uh, speak in the language of the Lord's Supper, uh, when he says in verses 3 and 4 that all ate the same spiritual food. And it was spiritual food because it was miraculously provided for the people. We're speaking of the manna, of course. 
And then about the drink, he has something interesting to say. All drank from the same spiritual drink. Remember that uh, Moses was there and the people were uh, complaining and murmuring and grumbling. And he uh, struck the rock, uh, and that's a sermon for another day, harder than he should have and with anger. Uh, But water came out nonetheless. And uh, and then uh, he says, they drank from the spiritual rock. And in my Bible, it uh, says here with a capital R, that followed them. That's an interesting thing. Uh, Paul may have had in mind, may not, I don't know. Uh, But rabbinic tradition had it that the water followed them wherever they went in the desert. And it did not, really, literally, not the water from the rock at Meribah. But uh, Jesus Christ, the preexistent Jesus Christ, to whom Paul is pointing now, he was very much active and alive and well in those days, too. And he was their spiritual rock from which they drank, and it was he uh, that followed them uh, in the desert. What a blessing. Uh, We have this union uh, with Christ uh, through the spiritual food and the spiritual drink of which we will eat and drink uh, at the conclusion of our service today. They were privileged and blessed with the blessing of participating in union with God in these things. And then we come to verse 5, and it starts with, nevertheless... In spite of all this, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Wow. And they were overthrown in the desert. Well, that uh, elicits the response, I'm sure, of the reader, as it would you. Well, what in the world was it that they did to be overthrown in the desert that caused God not to be pleased with most of them? And then Paul goes on to enumerate a number of things in verses 6 through 11. And on either side, as bookends, he says, these things of which he speaks in 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, these things are to be examples for us, for our instruction. So listen, and let's learn from our fathers and our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament so that we don't fall prey to the same overconfidence that they had in being in union with Moses and having the spiritual food and the spiritual drink. Nevertheless, God wasn't pleased with most of them. Let's not fall prey to what they did. Well, what is it that they did? Well, first of all, in verse 7, and it mentions in verse 6, by the way, these things took place as examples that we might not desire evil as they did. That's, that's what we need to underline here. We might not desire evil as they desired evil. The first thing he talks about is idolatry. And I find this a difficult thing to talk about with the uh, church in 2015 because uh, my mind goes to the Old Testament and I think these were primitive people, pretty uneducated folk. Uh, they worshipped uh, numerous gods uh, in the various nations and on occasion... Israel, the people of God, they worship the gods of other peoples as well or, or synchronized and, and mixed their religion with other people's religions. And uh, that just uh, doesn't sound like something that we today would do. And so we kind of write idolatry off as something Old Testament fashion in, in the way of sin. But it's very much New Testament. It's very much 2015. Let's talk about idolatry for a minute in terms of just what it is and and sharpen our minds once again uh, as to the dangers of of committing idolatry in 2015. The dangers uh, for Christ the King Church and John Montgomery to do that. First of all, when you have idolatry, you're, you're placing something in the place of God. You're putting something in the place of Jesus. Where Jesus belongs, you're substituting something else. 
They could be good things. Uh, but God wants to be first. And he's a jealous God when he's not first. And we place more prominence on some things. We place uh, more energy and, and money and time and effort into some things other than, than Christ. Sometimes we say, well, this is up equal with Christ. And that doesn't wash either. Everything else is below Christ. And so that's what idolatry is. We do it with our careers. Uh, we can do it with good things like our families. Careers are good things. We can do it with good things like sports, like boyfriends and girlfriends. And we can substitute other things like drugs and sex. And, and you know the list as it goes on and on. But we're not to be involved in substituting other things where God is to be in our lives, first and foremost. Glenn played, uh, prayed a wonderful prayer and stole most of my thunder when he did so, uh, talking about the centrality of Christ. That uh, Campus Crusade booklet, uh, The Four Spiritual Laws, has in the back that diagram of a circle representing our lives. And uh, inside the circle, it, it uh, has a number of, of things, all of which are good. And in the center is a chair, and Christ is to sit at the center of that chair. Christ the king. You ever heard of that? Christ is to be the king. If anything else is in that chair, however good it is, Christ isn't the king. He's somewhere outside of that chair, maybe even outside of that circle. And so let's not be guilty of putting other things uh, in the place of Jesus Christ. Uh, These people sat down and drank and rose up, and they played. Uh, it's said of our culture today that uh, we worship our work, we, uh, we play at our, uh, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. That really is an indictment against our country today. The next thing was sexual immorality uh, that was discussed there, the immorality uh, that they were involved in. Interestingly, uh, Paul says 23,000 fell in a single day. Uh, I'll give you a little something uh, to puzzle you, but not to lose sleep over. Uh, Numbers 25.9 says 24,000 people. I haven't got an answer for that. Maybe one of you do, and I'd love to have it, but I'm not going to lose sleep over it tonight. Probably Paul was rounding down and they were rounding up. I don't know. But uh, at any rate, there was a lot of people that died uh, and suffered because of their immorality. And people got complacent. They thought, you know, I can, I can adapt myself to Christ and the culture at the same time. And you can't do that. We're to be in but not of the world. And that's hard. In, in the culture they were in, in the culture that we live in, it's very difficult indeed. And they forgot the idea that God has a woodshed. And God will fly, take you to the woodshed. Because he loves you. Because he wants you back. That's why he'll do it. Not because he's a meanie, but because he loves you so much, he doesn't want you to go off into the culture and be more like the culture than the Christ. And then the next thing he mentions was uh, they put Christ to the test. That's an easy thing to do. Now, uh, there's one place in Scripture, at least, that comes to my mind where that's a good thing. God says in Malachi, put me to the test. You know, give me your tithes and your offerings and, and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven for you. God will pass that test every time in in various kinds of ways. But there's another way that they were guilty of of putting him to the test, and that is that they they just said, you know, this grace is a wonderful thing, and it is. I don't know of anything more wonderful than grace. I mean, I can sin, and he's going to forgive me, and I'll sin, and he'll forgive me, and I'll sin, and he'll forgive me. But if I'm not careful, I'll put him to the test and say, you know, I just how many times will you forgive me? 
And, and I know it's for all of eternity. He's going to forgive me. And I can kind of cheapen grace then and say, well, I can sin and then he can give me more grace. It'll be nice for him to give me that gift again and again and again. And we just put him to the test. And that's not something we should test God on. We shouldn't cheapen grace, as Bonhoeffer said. Uh, someone once said, and I, I appreciate this very much, and well, grace is grace, and I love it and believe in it. With grace comes personal responsibility. And we have a personal responsibility in our, in our sanctification process in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, and it's dependent on him that we make it to the end, not on us, but we still have a responsibility uh, in this matter. And then there's the whole business of the uh, grumbling that they did. Uh, everywhere we read, they're murmuring and grumbling. Well, we had it a lot better back in Egypt than we've got it out here. And uh, we've got McManna burgers, we've got McManna muffins, we've got McManna souffle, and we're tired of this manna stuff. And we don't have water, and we haven't had meat. And they go on and on. Uh, at the expense of maybe most of you having heard this story before, I'm going to tell it again. It's one of my favorite stories. It's about a man who wanted to become a Jesuit priest. So he goes to the abbey, and he meets with the abbot, and the abbot says, welcome, and uh, as you know, uh, we take a, a vow of silence here, uh, as well as poverty, and uh, I'll see you again in 10 years, but uh, you're not to say anything, and then you can say two words after 10 years. And so the guy serves his 10 years, and he comes back, and he's sitting in front of the abbot, and the abbot says, what do you have to say for yourself after these first 10 years? And he said, hard beds. And he said, well, thank you very much for expressing yourself. Uh, go back and, and live for the Lord. So another 10 years passes, and he comes uh, back to the abbot. The abbot says, what would you like to say for yourself now? These, next, uh, tw these last 20 years have passed, and, and these last 10, and he said, uh, bad food. And so he said, well, thank you very much, and go back to your uh, meditations and silence. And the guy comes back 10 years later, his 30th year, and he stands before the abbot. And uh, the abbot says, what do you have to say for yourself after 30 years? He says, I quit. <laughs> and the abbot says, well, I'm not surprised. All you've done is complain since you've been here. <laughs> I don't know what it is about the church that draws grumblers and mumblers and complainers. I, if I could have rid the churches I served of those, and if I could have rid myself of those uh, sins, uh, we'd have been a lot better off. But why is it that people are always mumbling and grumbling and complaining when there's so much for us to be grateful for. So those are the things he lists there. So then he comes to verse 11, which is kind of a stinger uh, that hits right at their overconfidence. And he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands. These people thought they stood tall for the Lord. The people in the Old Testament did too, who were overthrown in the wilderness. And these people thought they stood tall. Take heed, lest you fall. Pride goes before the fall. You've heard that before? And look at the times you've fallen and look back, and it was probably pride that preceded it. Some conceit, uh, some prideful actions or words or moments, maybe some accolades or awards that you didn't accept humbly, and then came the fall. Take heed. Those of you stand and are overconfident. The Secret Service was probably overconfident with regard to what could happen at the White House, the White House lawn. And 
they have fallen in the eyes of the public and are probably doing some examining right now. So we need to examine ourselves. And then he comes to this verse 13, which I highly recommend for your uh, memorization. It has three parts to it, and it deals with temptation. And I'll deal with the three parts in just a moment, but let me deal with temptation for just a moment, if I may. First of all, as we take a sidebar and talk about temptation, uh, temptation uh, is a neutral word in the scriptures. So it depends on the context in which it appears for you to determine whether it's talking about uh, being tempted to do something good or being tempted in the form of a test, and we'll talk about that in a moment, or whether it's talking about being tempted uh, to sin. Normally, when we hear the word tempted, uh, temptation, we think of the latter uh, being tempted to sin, and that's probably its most frequent use uh, and application and context in the scriptures. But it's a neutral word, and uh, another thing we should understand is that temptation is not sin. It's what you do with temptation that can become sin, but it's not sin. Jesus Christ, we read in Hebrews, let me just uh, share that with you. In Hebrews uh, chapter 2, there's a a section, and I'll just read in the section in chapter 4. We do not have a high priest, I'm reading verse 15 of chapter 4 of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then there's this wonderful uh, salad verse here. Let us uh, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus was tempted uh, and yet without sin. We, we read about his temptation early in the gospels where Satan sought to uh, uh, tempt him as well. Uh, and then another thing about testing is that God, uh, this word can mean testing, God will test us, and he has tested us, and he's tested you as a congregation, you as individuals and families. He's tested me personally. And it's not always a lot of fun, but it's with the idea of approving us or approving of us in our faith, having our faith grow, being strengthened in our faith. Poor Job. I mean, this guy... He wasn't perfect, but he really didn't do anything to deserve what came upon him, as God said to Satan, you know, have your run with this guy. You can't mess with his family. You can't take his life. And Satan tried to deal with Job, and I couldn't get him to recant his faith. And then Satan comes back to the Lord and says, you know, let me add his family. I, I can have him then recant his faith in God. So he let him add his family at great cost to him, but he wouldn't re- can't his faith. And he said, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's easy to read, hard to say in your own circumstances, but God will test us. And again, every temptation that we have is an opportunity to draw closer to God. Remember that. It can be a good thing when we're tested by God to be drawn closer to him. And then the last thing in this sidebar that I'll mention, well, why is it we say, lead us not into, into temptation? The sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Well, if God only tests us, why would we say that? Uh, let's look first at uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, 13 through 15, and uh, see what he has to say there that helps us. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, because he's a holy God. He can't be tempted with evil. Um, And he himself tempts no one. 
Here's how sin happens with temptation. But each one, uh, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Now, this is sort of the progression of, of temptation and, and leading to sin and death. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So don't ever think that God is tempting to do, to do evil. That's against his nature to do that. What we're saying is, when we're saying, lead me not into temptation, and let me quickly bring on the next part of the prayer as well, but deliver us from the evil one. I really think that's the way I pray the Lord's Prayer, the evil one, not just evil. And it's, it's accurate and correct to pronounce it and, and say the evil one for the word paneros is there in the Greek in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but we're weak, and we're saying, Lord, I am weak, and there are pitfalls all about me. There are tugs from my culture. I'm not even getting support from my husband or my wife right now in this area, my children. Uh, I'm not getting support at, at my office place. Uh, my church isn't supporting. You have all these kind of things where you feel you're very much alone. And I'm weak, and I need you to help me not to fall into these places. Martin Luther said that you can't keep the birds from flying overhead, speaking of temptations, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. And so you're saying to God, I see these birds flying around, but don't let them take root in my, in my life. Don't let them nest in my hair. Now let's look at this uh, 1013. It has three parts to it. The first uh, part, A, says that uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What this is warning us about here and what Paul is saying is uh, that, first of all, uh, you're prone to say, this thing, these birds are flying overhead, and I'm starting to take nest in my hair. It's worse than anybody out here has ever experienced. You wouldn't understand it. And that's why I've given into it or I'm going to give into it. It's, it's, it's a worse temptation than anybody's ever experienced. Or it's more temptation than I can possibly stand. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the Lord says here, no, uh, even Jesus has been tempted in every way, such as we are, yet without sin. And we have Jesus, and we can be tempted in every way, and every way we've ever been tempted is not something that someone else hasn't experienced. Some have caved into it, and some have found victory in it. Those who are, find themselves in Jesus and focused on him at the center and, and use some of the other truths of Scripture, they'll come out victorious. Those who cave in because it just does, doesn't seem possible uh, to do anything other than give in to it. And then the second part says um, that there's no temptation that's not within our ability to withstand. God's never going to let us be tempted beyond what we're able uh, to withstand. And we need to understand that. Uh, Joseph, day after day after day, Potiphar's wife, come to bed with me, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. And he resisted day after day after day. How many people resist that kind of temptation today? Not many. Most would be proud to hop in the sack with Potiphar's wife. And then Augustine, this great theologian. And before we came to know him as a great theologian, he was pretty much of a rounder. He was a professor at a college, a very smart individual. And he slept around 
he saw one of the woman, women that he slept with on the street one day after he had uh, broken off with her and after he had come to know the Lord. And she says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And you know what his response was? But it is not I. He's the new man. He's not the old man. And, and he's resisting that temptation by saying, I'm a person of Christ now. I'm not the old man that I used to be. And then God will always provide a way of escape. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as, as we think, so are we. And there's something that psychologists use, and I don't usually applaud psychologists. Um, uh, they're not all bad as a lot, and all of what they do isn't bad as a lot, but um, there's a lot more to be learned from the scriptures than some of the poppycock that goes on in psychology today. And uh, basically, one of the things that they say is, when you know you're going to be tempted, and you're going to be tempted, and I'm going to be tempted, at 74, I still get tempted by things I thought would long since have left that still haunt me. And when I know I'm going to be tempted, what do I do in advance? Do I have a plan? Yeah, I stop and I think the minute I feel the temptation coming on me when I'm in my right moments with the Lord. And, and I said, all right, what am I going to put in its place? Displacement. I'm going to displace this thought, this temptation with something else. And usually I say 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and I say it over and over. And a lot of times I'll go to the Lord and I'll say, and usually this is at night when I've been fighting all day long with temptation, and I'll say, Lord, you who's in me is greater than he who's in this world, and right now I don't feel you in me. And right now, and he can handle that. Um, and, and right now, I think I'm on the losing side of things, which means if I lose, you lose. And you don't want to lose, do you? And that's putting God to the test in another way. I think it's okay. And he usually says, no, I don't want to lose. And I said, well, show yourself. Make yourself strong. Help us to come out victors in this thing for your glory. You get the credit and you get the honor for it. I'll give it to you. But I, I just can't fight this thing alone. And he said, I never intended for you to. I intended for you to draw close. And that's what you've just done. And so the victory's been won. Philippians uh, is a wonderful little book, as you know. And there's something else that I do uh, with Philippians. And I read verse 8 of chapter 4. I've really pretty much got it memorized at this point. But this is a part of the stop-think process in displacing the, the thought, the, the temptation. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. How about those things? True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise... Think about these things. That's what I try to do. I try to do a transference of my, my thought process and my spirit and to think about the positive things rather than this negative thing that's hounding me or, or calling me. So then Paul goes on, and I haven't really done service to what he uh, has as his main address of a problem because it really isn't very applicable to our church today. The problem that Paul was dealing with largely was people who were eating food sacrificed to idols. Some of them um, were actually going to pagan feasts, knowingly eating the food sacrificed to idols, at which commonly there was 
there were prostitutes from the temple of Aphrodite and the like. And that's what their culture was uh, engaging them in, or they were engaging in, in their culture. Um, some others, if they were invited over to somebody's house, uh, they didn't know if that food was being served was uh, being, uh, had been offered to idols. Others would go to the marketplace and buy food, and they didn't know if the food had been sacrificed to idols. So you can see this is pretty boring for us today and doesn't have much application at all. Um, Zach's wife sitting down there saying, thank God he didn't preach on that the whole time. Uh, it didn't bring him all the way from Orlando to hear about eating food sacrificed to idols, right? Uh, but Paul will, will deal with this for the, rest, the entire rest of the chapter, but he'll touch on it just briefly in what we'll finish uh, in our reading today, which brings in the Lord's Supper. Basically, he says, you know, you shouldn't be eating food sacrificed to idols knowingly, uh, but uh, unknowingly, you're not going to be held accountable. And furthermore, uh, what are idols? They're, they're nothing. They're false gods. And it's no big deal anyway, really, when it comes down to it. It's not like they have any power over you since you're eating food sacrificed to idols. So that's all I'm going to say about that subject. Uh, and all God's people said, amen. Um, and so he goes on and he says, um, after telling us there's a way of escape here, to look for the way of escape. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak uh, as to sensible people. Judge yourselves what I, for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then he goes on to talk more about the subject at hand that he started back in chapter 8. And so, brothers and sisters, here we are looking to examine ourselves a bit, especially as we come to the Lord's table. It's a very strong word that uh, we read uh, in another chapter just beyond this one, uh, that we should do so as we come to the Lord's table. It's one of the reasons that, uh, that we don't uh, have infants take uh, the Lord's Supper, and we have uh, our children brought to the elders of the church to be examined to see if they're capable uh, on their own of examining themselves in this extremely important way that the word examine in the Greek indicates. Examine ourselves on overconfidence, on complacency. Where are we overconfident and kind of cocky in our faith? Kind of feel like we've got all these blessings and privileges and graces so wonderful, which it is, that we can just go and do anything we well please. And then we get complacent and we let our guard down and we let things into our lives that we shouldn't let into our lives that displease God. He still loves us and he's still going to save us. We're not going to lose our salvation um, as long as we repent and we are truly his elect. But it's something we don't want to do is displease God. So with that in mind, uh, we will uh, come to the Lord's table in just a few moments. But uh, 